Happy birthday, Phoebe. I wish I could be there with you. And you guys sound pretty good. <laughs> uh, we, it is great to have such a talented worship band, and, and Tim just has like 80 talented kids. I don't know how. <laughs> My kids will all be very good at sarcasm, and his kids are all good at every musical thing they ever do. So I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about the very first Buckeye fan I ever met. And <laughs> I expected more of an, I actually had jokes if you guys said things really loudly. So, uh, <laughs> so th in 2008, I, I graduated from seminary and we, we were living in Waco, Texas at the time. And then we, we moved to Denver, Colorado in October of 2008. And so I had a Master of Divinity in emphasis in theology. I also had a Bachelor's of Arts with an emphasis in theology. And so we got there and I thought, I've got, I've got two degrees. Getting a job is going to be really easy. And so we got there and Robin used her marketable skills, her winning personality, her uh, job, you know, job experience, and she got a job within two weeks. <laughs> and me, with my none of those things, was sitting around playing video games for at least two months, right? And so I kept thinking, nobody wants somebody with two degrees in theology to come do whatever for them. And so, so finally, after several months, I, I, we both found this job listing for a place called Denver Rescue Mission, and basically the job was a bread truck driver. And so, so I got my master's degree, and I went in, and I was like, hey, you, you know what you've always been looking for in a bread truck driver, right? <laughs> No, so I went to this interview, and basically, I got the job, and, and it was really wonderful. It was a great place to work. Denver Rescue Mission is faith-based, and they, they meet people at their point of need, but then they also have this program where people that are trying to get off of drugs or alcohol, people that are trying to get back on their feet, even just homelessness, is a, a program to help people with those things. And so, so they have this whole program, and my job was to drive a truck all around Denver and go to grocery stores and pick up bread that was about to expire, pick up donuts from donut shops. And I remember there was this one donut shop called Lamar's Donuts, and they make humongous, so this is like the size of a cinnamon roll, like a hubcap, right? And, <laughs> and they're delicious. And every Tuesday and Thursday, we would go in there, and the lady loved us. She was so nice, and she would always be like, here, let me give you a couple donuts. And I was like, uh... So I always took it, and then she gave this huge Dr. Pepper with it every time, and so <laughs> this was the worst job for my waistline that I've ever experienced. So, so in this job, I would drive around in this truck, and they would always put a driver helper with me. And the very first driver helper I had was this guy named Craig, and Craig was part of the program. He was trying to get his life back together. And one of the first few days, I had some Oklahoma gear on, and Oklahoma was having a pretty good season in 2008. And then we ran into this kind of sleazy coach in the national championship. Uh, he's coaching Florida, he's urban something or other. <laughs> anyway, so it was a good season for Oklahoma, and, and Craig sat down next to me, and he said, oh, you like college football? I love high estate. <laughs> and that's exactly how he said it, high estate. And, <laughs> and this is the funny thing about some of you. I'm, I'm going to point something out, and I hope you can take this in love. Some of you will have no accent at all until it comes to that, and you'll say, high estate. <laughs> no accent, and then you'll say, high estate, and it's hilarious to me. So, so Craig says this. He says, I'm a fan of high estate, and I was like, oh, all right, whatever, man. You know, I don't care. <laughs> so, so we started talking, and Craig and I became really good friends. And, and so throughout the course of these weeks and months, we became really good friends, and it got to be early mid-December, and one day Craig sat down next to me, 
and he was just beaming. He was so excited, and he, he had in his hand a McDonald's gift card, <laughs> and, and his mom, who had been kind of estranged from him, had sent this, and there was 10 or $15 on it, and he was like, I am so excited I can finally buy myself a meal. I'm so pumped about this. And so he's showing it to me, and I was like, man, that's great, Craig. You know, it only takes me like two hours to make that much money. <laughs> no, it, was, it didn't pay me very well. So, so he showed me that, and I was really excited for him, and he said, hey, hey, do you mind if we stop sometime and I can grab some lunch? And I said, of course, I'm happy to do that. And, and so we pulled into McDonald's, and he said, you know, Chris, actually, I want to buy you lunch, too. And, and I was just shocked. I was like, Craig, that's ridiculous. Don't be an idiot, man. You only get... You don't have any money, and I have a really poorly paying job, but I do have a job. <laughs> so let me at least, let me at least get my own. And, and so we went back and forth for a long time, and finally Craig said, hey, I don't ever get to feel normal, and it's going to make me feel really normal if I buy this meal for you. And so, so I was like, okay, okay, fine, Craig. And, and so the look of joy, we used his entire gift card. <laughs> he didn't have anything left. But the look of joy, it did not make any sense to me. It defied common sense. It was ridiculous. But, but he was so happy. He was so excited to be able to do this thing for me. And, and I remember from then on, we would always drive past the same McDonald's. And, and he would look, and he would kind of get this look of nostalgia, this look of excitement. He would say, that's the best McDonald's in town right there. And, and I didn't have the heart to tell him McDonald's are all terrible, you know, but... <laughs> But, but he would always say, that's the best McDonald's in town right there. And, and, and it, was, it was this moment that completely defied common sense. Why would he share all he had with me? Why would he do that thing? But it was this kingdom moment, right, of, of him recognizing that sharing sometimes multiplies the joy. This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14, if you want to turn with me. We're going to be starting in verse 13 this morning. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So the very first line of this says, when Jesus heard what had happened. And so the question is obviously what had happened, what, what did he hear had happened. And so because of the way we're kind of going through Matthew, we, we miss a lot of these stories. But basically in the, the few verses before this, we find out about the fate of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet, but he was also Jesus' cousin. And, and at this moment in history, there was these guys named Herod. <laughs> and first there was Herod the Great, and he took over the land of Israel, Palestine, from the Hasmoneans, 
also known as the Maccabees, and we'll talk about them in a few weeks, but, but they were the ruling class, and then, and then Herod the Great kind of took over, and he was a vassal of Rome. And so he, he kissed up to Rome, he did what they wanted, he did their bidding, and so the Jewish people looked at him with a level of resentment. They were frustrated, they did not like Herod the Great, because they saw him as, as capitulating to this foreign power that was ruling over them. Herod the Great died around 4 B.C., and in Herod the Great's family, there are like 50 Herods, and so this gets really confusing for us. So there's a, a guy who had a great invention. His name's George Foreman. Anybody ever heard of him? The, the lean, mean, fat grilling machine, right? And, and you may not know this about George Foreman, but before he had that invention, he was a boxer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this man invented this incredible sandwich maker and grilling machine, and then he, he was a boxer even in a different life. But George Foreman has five sons, and they're all named George Foreman. And so before George Foreman did that, Herod had kind of done that very, you know, thousands of years ago. So Herod has all these people in his line, and they're all named Herod something or other. So they've got Herod Antipas, Herod Antipater, um, Herod, uh, think of it, Agrippa, yes. Uh, there's a lot of different Herods, and you've probably heard them here and there. And so there's this guy, Herod, and he is in charge of Jerusalem area at this point in time. And one of his cousins or something or other, was married to his brother Philip, and Herod and Philip are both tetrarchs. Tetrarch means that there are four of them, and they were ruling the same area as Herod the Great. So there's four tetrarchs. Philip's wife, Herodias, divorces him, and then marries this other Herod. And John the Baptist sees that, and he loses his mind. He sees that the people of God are compromising their morals, their ethics. He sees that they're following this person who is not following God's law, and he starts speaking up about it. He cannot help but speak up about it. He says, when did the people of God forget their standards? When did they forget their ethics, their morals? And so he's saying all these things, and power does not like to be spoken to in that way. So Herod has him arrested, but Herod enjoys listening to him speak, strangely enough. So, so Herod keeps him alive for a while, but then Herodias, his new wife, is not happy about that. And so she uh, tricks him, basically asks him to murder John the Baptist, and, and so he takes off John the Baptist's head, and Jesus hears about this, and, and he, he's grieving in this moment, and so he has to get away, and, and Jesus here goes, it says he, hearing this, the, uh, he, by boat privately to a solitary place, and I think Jesus here models a kind of mental, emotional, spiritual health that a lot of us in the people business ought to emulate. Jesus is grieving, he's sad, he's hurt, and so what does he do? He doesn't continue to work. He doesn't continue to be busy. He pulls back, and he goes, and he's alone for a little while. This is a model, I think, for, for emotional, spiritual health. He recognizes he cannot help all the time. He has to take a break, and so Jesus does that. They take this boat. They get to the other side, and the crowds are just following him because they, they love him. They love what he's doing. And so he looks out, and he has compassion on them. So he starts doing good works for them. He's counseling with them. He's talking with them. He's helping them. He's healing them. He's, he's listening to them. And finally, at the end of the day, the disciples who have a lot of common sense, they come to him and they say, hey, why don't we get rid of all these folks? We, uh, we need to eat. And I'm sure they want to eat too, so send them on their way, Jesus. They don't ask. I think it's so funny. They don't ask. They just tell Jesus, hey, go ahead and send these people away so that we can have something to eat. And, and I guess so they can eat too. <laughs> And, and I love this moment. Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and I, I picture the moment 
of stillness, the look on the disciples' face. And so they look at Jesus, maybe, and then they look out at the crowd, and people are, they're, they're fooling around, they're standing around, lots of them are coughing without covering their mouths, and the disciples are like, how? <laughs> All right, here's the deal, Jesus. There's not just 5,000 men. There's at least that many women and children. And so, so they have this moment, and they look down, and they've got their little sandwich, you know, they've got five loaves and two fish, and, they, and, and I hear between the lines here, I hear them saying, we've got five loaves and two fish, enough for a light meal for 13 of us or so, hoping he takes the hint, right? <laughs> They're hungry too. And Jesus looks and he says, all right, bring everything you got. Bring it all over here. And Jesus blesses it. Thousands of years before this, there was these people, and they were captive. They were slaves. They were behind enemy lines. And, and so they cried out to God, and they said, God, you've got to help us. You've got to free us. They cried out months, years. They cried out to God, set us free. God found a champion and sent that champion to set them free. There was a contest between Yahweh, the Lord God, and the gods of this other nation. And Yahweh won. And so the people were free. And so they went out, but they went out to the desert. And they're wandering in this desert, and every day, God sent something down onto the ground that they named, what is it? <laughs> Manna, in their language. And so every, every morning, they would pick up this what is it, and they would grind it up. They would make a, a kind of a nasty little bread with it, and they would eat. And every night, this would go bad. And so God sent them enough every time. Here, thousands of years after that, Jesus takes all the disciples have, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it, and do they have enough? They have more than enough. And so we see here the promise of the messianic kingdom is so much greater than anything God has done before. He multiplies it and there's 12 baskets extra. Jesus did that. And it doesn't make any sense at all to us, does it? Going on. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, said Peter, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And so again, we see Jesus. He's exhausted from a long day of healing, of helping people. And again, he pulls back to a solitary place. And again, he models this pattern of helping and then resting. I have a mentor in ministry, and he says that for, for us as pastors, we ought to only schedule up to 60% of our time because he says we need these margins built in. If somebody has an emergency, 
and, and you've scheduled all of your time, then they become an interruption. But if you've got a margin, then they're not an interruption any longer. You can help them, and they have a free, free conscience, and you have a free conscience. Suddenly you have this ability to help people in a way that Jesus did. And Jesus recognized he could not help everyone all the time. He pulled back, and he was in a solitary place. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and so the wonderful thing that we have today is the internet, right? And I thought, what does the Sea of Galilee look like? And so I got a few pictures of it. And, and this, is, this is not just a normal lake, right? This is a pretty sizable area. And so we hear that they're out in this lake in the middle of a storm, and we kind of think, well, why don't you just go inside? You know, it's just a storm, no big deal, guys. But, but for them, in the middle of a lake, this is a huge deal. And so they've gotten out into the middle of it, and, and suddenly they see someone coming towards them. And, and I think a lot of times we think, ah, oh, these foolish people, they, they think it's a ghost, right? And we kind of lightheartedly laugh about that. But unless you're in Minnesota in the middle of winter and, and somebody is walking on a lake towards you, you ought to be a little worried, I think. <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> this is not the way things normally go down. And, and so in the middle of this storm, a figure is walking towards them, and the figure repeats words that we've heard the figure say before. Do not be afraid. He says, it's me. So Peter then says, if it is you, let me walk on the water with you. And, 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 and so in a normal reading, in a normal theology, most of the time we use Peter as an example, right? If we have enough faith, we will also step out of the boat. We will also step and we will walk on water with Jesus. And, and that's normally the way I have interpreted this as well, but I was I was reading, and a theologian that I was reading had a different take on it, and so I hope you can bear with me. Maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right. Uh, interesting thought exercise either way. So he says, perhaps if Peter had had faith, he would not have gotten out of the boat at all. Perhaps if he had faith, he would not have needed to. Here's the argument. His language here, if it is you, Lord, if it is you, this is very reminiscent of when the enemy has a showdown with Jesus in chapter 4 of Matthew. And we're going to get to that in a couple weeks, but we haven't talked about it yet. But the enemy says, if you are the Son of God, do this spectacular thing. If you are the Son of God, prove it. If you are the Son of God. And the language here that Peter uses is very reminiscent of that. If it is you, prove it to me. <laughs> and what do we see over and over when people ask Jesus to prove who he is? He's not happy about that. <laughs> Peter, Jesus rarely appreciates it when people say, prove it. But in this moment, he says, why don't you step on out? And he, and he acquiesces. He gives in to Peter anyway. And, and, and so what else we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is that seldom, seldom does God say, if you have enough faith, then your circumstances will all be well. Seldom does that happen. Seldom is the message, if you have enough faith, suddenly everything will be safe and fine. You will be 100% all right. You'll use God's spectacular miracles to get out of all trouble. That is seldom the message in the New Testament. Usually the message is, there will be trouble and it will hurt. And so I think maybe the message here is if Peter had enough faith, he would have been able to stay in the boat in the middle of the storm. He would have believed, this is Jesus, Jesus is good, and Jesus is with me. So these two stories combine... And I think they have kind of a, a contrast between common sense and, and kingdom sense, right? These two stories together make a really strong argument. This is a Jesus who has defied expectations, and I think here he continues to defy them, and he defies common sense. So, 
What are the types of common sense that these stories defy? First, common sense is we compare what we have with the immense need of the world. We compare what we have to the immense need of the world. So the disciples are in this moment, and they look down, five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, you feed them, and they they look down at five loaves and two fish, and they look out at the crowds, and common sense says there's no way we have enough. There's just no way. I know a lot of you are teachers, and I was thinking about teachers in light of this, and, and so teachers have a limited amount of time, right? Teachers of all people see the immense need in our world. They see kids who are struggling. <laughs> oh my gosh. How did that happen? <laughs> Ruined it. <laughs> teachers look and they see kids that are struggling. They see parents who, who just can't help them. They see kids that come to school hungry. They see kids who can't finish their homework. Kids who don't get sleep at night. And they see 30, 60, 90 of these kids on a daily basis. How in the world can they help them all? And so teachers look down at their five loaves and their two fish and they compare what they have with the immense need in the world. Common sense tells us we ought to continue doing that. Common sense also compares what we have with the storms in this life. Common sense sits there with Peter and says, if only I could do something amazing, I could get out of this boat and I wouldn't be in danger any longer. Common sense looks at the boats that we have and looks at the storm and says, there's just no way we're making it through this. And so we think about storms and we think about grief, we think about struggles, we think about all the difficulties. We look at our bills and we look at our paychecks and we recognize that the storm is raging, right? We turn on the news for 10 minutes and we think, how is this world going to continue? We hear the news from the hospital and the storms are raging, right? And so we look down at this little boat that we have and it just doesn't seem big enough. And so common sense tells us to compare what we have with the storms of this life. Common sense is also a way that we seek and we look for a way out. Now maybe that's not the right way to interpret what Peter did, but, but for the sake of argument, we're going to look at it today. So common sense is looking and saying, if God would just do something spectacular. You know one of the things I prayed for during those two months before I found a job? Winning the lottery. <laughs> God, you called me to start a church. If you would help me win the lottery, then this would be pretty easy. (laughs) And so common sense looks and, and, and it asks for God if you would just provide something spectacular to give me a way out of this. And this is reminiscent of the temptation account. The enemy takes Jesus up on the corner of the temple. Says, if you are the Messiah, you can throw yourself off and survive. Something spectacular will save you from all danger. So those are all common sense But what is faith? Faith or kingdom sense is realizing, recognizing that all you have is enough. All that you have is enough. So Jesus looked down at these five loaves and two fish and he said, that's enough. (laughs) And he looked at the disciples in their small boat and he said, that's enough if they trust in the goodness of Jesus. He said that is enough. We've we've been keeping this, this parable of the pearl this parable of the hidden treasure kind of in front of our minds, right? And so one of the things I want to con- ask you to consider this morning, you go and you find this hidden treasure, and then you rehide it in the field, and you give everything to be able to buy this. Are you getting fair market price for that treasure? Oh, you're getting a bargain, right? You wouldn't have to hide it if it wasn't a bargain. And so 
the demand of the treasure, though, is you've got to give up everything. You've got to give everything. And so I think about the disciples, and I think, what if, what if they had kept back one of those loaves? What if they had said, here's all we got, Jesus, it's four loaves and two fish. Would that have been enough? And I'm tempted to say it would not. I'm tempted to say the price of the pearl is everything, not just most of our things. Not just most of our things. And so common sense compares what we have with the massive need of the world. Kingdom sense recognizes that our God is big enough to handle all those things. He took five loaves and he two fish and he, he had 12 baskets extra. Common sense compares what we have with the massive storms in our lives. Kingdom sense looks at the boat and recognizes that Jesus is good and he is there with us. So he's never promised we're going to get through this thing unscathed. He's not promised that. There will be troubles in this life, but he's promised he's good. He's promised he's with us. And in the end, he will make things right. And if things are not right, it is not the end. Common sense looks for a painless way out, and Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And this is the difficulty of this pearl, right? This bar is so high. The disciples looked at their five loaves and two fish, and they said, but Jesus, we're hungry. <laughs> but faith gave them anyway. They looked at the little boat they were in, and I would argue 11 of them had faith that Jesus was good and would take care of them, and they stayed anyway. So, what does this look like? We look at this immense need. Is there any way we can meet all the needs in our world? No. But we can do something, right? Layla is doing a dinner soon. <laughs> that is something. That is kingdom sense. It is saying we can't help everyone, but we can help someone. Common sense says, well, if we can't help everyone, we shouldn't even bother. But kingdom sense says we're going to do what we can. We're going to do everything we can. I was thinking about common sense, and common sense would say, do not ever build out your entire basement into a apartment to take care of furloughed missionaries or to take care of baseball teams in man a manner of ministry or to take care of your pastor before he has a place to live. <laughs> common sense would say, don't do those things. That's a waste of money. But kingdom sense says, you do what you can and trust Jesus to do the rest. And that is the message of these here. That is the message of this, is that common sense is not kingdom sense. Common sense is not kingdom sense. And kingdom sense says we do all that we're called to do. So maybe God has put something on your heart. And maybe you look and you say, there's no way this will change the world. Maybe not. But it might change someone. And so if the Holy Spirit has put it on your heart, it is your job to start doing that thing. It is your job to invest in that way. God has called you to do it. Don't let anything stand in the way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are sometimes overwhelmed by your call. We're also overwhelmed by your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. And so we, we ask that you would move our hearts, you would move our hands and our feet, and we would do the things you want us to do. Lord, allow us to have faith. Allow us to have faith that you have given us enough and that we can share that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to take a few moments this morning to take communion together. And so we're, uh, we're having a huddle right now. But, but when we take communion, what, what we do is we come together and we recognize that through the broken body, through the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, we are made whole. 
I'm imploring you to give all you have. And, and here's the amazing thing about the gospel message is that Jesus gave all he had so that we could be whole. He gave us everything. He gave us his very life. And so here in just a moment, we're going to be passing out the bread. And, and we're all going to take that and we're going to remember that Jesus gave everything for us. Jesus gave everything so that we could be whole, so that we could know one another, and so that we could know him. So we're going to take that bread, and then we'll take it together in just a moment. So pass out the bread. So Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your body broken for us that through your stripes we are healed and made whole. We're going to pass out the juice now and in just a moment we'll drink it together.
So this is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, spilled so that you might have redemption. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you came to make us whole. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you've given us. Lord God, we thank you that you loved us so much. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.